Good afternoon. So what did we just do, just now? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so yes, we were singing, but we just prayed, right? We were just praying. My faith looks up to thee. Who's thee? That's our God. We were just addressing our God. It was in the form of a song, but it absolutely was prayer. And part of my aim in this talk today is to expand our understanding of what we mean when we talk about what prayer is. And I would submit that, that biblically, one form, one common, one commonly encouraged and uh, exhorted form of prayer is singing praises to the Lord. That is a form of prayer. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up to Isaiah chapter 12. Isaiah chapter 12. If you have it, say amen. amen. I'm going to read verses 1 to 6. At the conclusion of the reading, I will say this is God's word. And if you believe that to be the case, I want to encourage you to respond. Thanks be to God. Isaiah 12, beginning at verse 1, says... You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation." With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so, Father, we pray that you would um, be glorified as your word is proclaimed this afternoon. Uh, God, many of us are, are tired. We have that, that after lunch days about us. Father, I pray that you would wake us up and energize us and um, 
and teach us what it, what it means to sing to the Lord with joy because of what you have accomplished for us in Christ. And so, Father, we pray that in this time, the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to reveal the Son of God. And we pray that you would do this for the glory of your beautiful name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this passage here in Isaiah is sandwiched between two sections. So the first section that began in Isaiah chapter 6 with the calling of Isaiah and his vision of the Lord. And then after chapter 12, it begins another section that's filled with oracles for the nations that were surrounding Israel at the time. And if you read these sections, you'll see that there's a lot of judgment, particularly in these sections of Isaiah. But with the judgment, there's also mercy. And this section here in chapter 12 is an oasis of mercy. So it's it's very forward-looking. So if If you look in verses 1 and 4, you see that phrase, you will say in that day. So it's looking beyond the judgment, beyond the exile to Babylon for Israel. And I would even argue, ultimately, it's looking beyond this world altogether. So a chapter earlier in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, we see reference to in that day. And the day that's being referred to there is the same day as chapter 11, verse 9, when it says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. And so it's the same day in verse 6 of chapter 11 when it says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And so what the Lord is doing through Isaiah is he's letting his people know that no matter what it looks like, once the judgment of God falls on Israel, there's still hope for the future. And God lets them know that when that time comes, they are going to do something. When God saves them, there's something very specific that they are going to do. They are going to open their mouths and give praise to God. When God saves them, what they're going to do is open their mouths and give praise to God. And so the idea of praising God shapes our points This afternoon, we need to take note of the pronouns, that the pronouns are different in the verses. So in verse 1, it is singular. You, singular, will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. And notice also the me in verse 1, though you were angry with me, uh, that you might comfort me. That is singular. In verse 2 as well, God is my salvation. That is singular. The Lord God is my strength, my song. He's become my salvation. All of those are singular. But then in verse 3, it shifts to plural. So in verse 3, with joy you, plural, will draw water from the wells of salvation. And so in light of that, two points. Point number one, Praise God individually. Praise God individually. Look again at verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. 
I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. One thing to notice about the last part of verse 2 is that it's almost an exact quotation of Exodus chapter 15, verse 2. And it was actually just alluded to a verse earlier in chapter 11, verse 16. So chapter 11, verse 16 says, And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. So remember that there's no chapter breaks in the original text. So this is clearly a reference to the Exodus, that great work of deliverance that God did when he used Moses to rescue his people from slavery to Egypt with signs and wonders. God brought miraculous plagues on Egypt, and he split the Red Sea, causing Israel to walk through it on dry ground. And then he caused the water to, to come back when Pharaoh and the Egyptians tried to chase them, and he drowned them. And the words at the end of verse 2 is from the song of Moses that they sang immediately after God rescued them. And so up to this point in redemptive history, the Exodus was the greatest work of deliverance that God had done for Israel. And it was so great that God commanded them to do things like the Passover, a meal commemorating what happened as a regular reminder of what God had done. And in commanding the Passover, God says in Exodus chapter 13, verse 8, and when it comes, and when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And so what God is saying here in Isaiah 12 too is that the work that I'm doing, that I'm going to do, is going to be like a second exodus. It's going to be like a second deliverance. And the way that you will respond when that happens is that you will open up your mouth and you will give praise to God. And this is the testimony of all God's people for all time. So if, if you're a Christian, this is your testimony. You were in a place where you were lost God provided a great salvation and a great deliverance, and as a result of God providing that salvation and deliverance, you in response opened up and you continue to open up your mouth in praise to God. What I love about this text is that it doesn't sugarcoat things. It's absolutely honest about the character of God. So notice that it doesn't say in verse 1 that God is love only and doesn't have any wrath. No, it says, verse 1, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. Now, most people in this world deny the God of the Bible. They have no category for the wrath of God as it is depicted in Scripture. And so that's why when people who are known for wickedness in our culture die, people still say things like, rest in peace. But as Christians, we know that God says there is no rest at all for the wicked. Or when people die, people who are clear in their opposition to God, they die. People say things like, they're smiling down on us from heaven. People who talk that way do so because they don't have clear categories for the idea of God's wrath. 
Notice in verse 6, you see this reference to the Holy One of God. The only way that one can assume that the wicked rest in peace is if they have not grasped that God is the Holy One. They haven't had an Isaiah 6 type of experience. They haven't experienced him for who he is. But the Bible is very clear about the nature of our God and his holiness and the reality of his judgment on sin and sinners. Colossians 3 verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That idea of the wrath of God, for those of us who are Christians, what happened was at one time we did not see God for who he actually is. If anything, we had our own ideas of who we thought God was, and we imported those things to him. But what he did for you, if you are a Christian, is at some point he opened your eyes. And when he opened your eyes, a number of things happened. First, you saw him for who he is. You saw that he is the Holy One, that he is the spotless one, that he is absolutely perfect and that his eyes are too pure to even look on sin. Along with that, you also saw something else. You saw yourself in light of his holiness. And you saw that in light of his holiness that you actually fall short of his glory. Another thing that you saw along with that is that there's absolutely nothing that you can do to save yourself. You cannot do anything to remove God's wrath from you. And if you are a Christian, when God opens your eyes to see his holiness and your sinfulness, what he also showed you was his unfathomable love and grace and mercy. He showed you his kindness in sending the Lord Jesus Christ to come into this world, to live the perfect life that none of us could ever live, to die on the cross as your substitute in your place, taking on himself the full weight of the wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sins. He showed you that Jesus did not stay dead on the cross, but that on the third day he rose again from the grave, that Jesus is alive. He's alive and well. And he showed you that not only that, but he's in heaven right now interceding for you and that the time is going to come at the end of the age when he's going to judge the world and he's going to take his people to be with him forever. And then he also showed you that the way that you get and and, and receive the, the grace of what God has accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the way that you get it is by faith alone. 
that it's not anything that has nothing to do with your works, that you can't make yourself good enough to be deserving of what God has done. No, it's completely undeserved. It's nothing but His grace. He's done it in His kindness. All we have to do is turn from our sins, place our trust in the Savior, and everything that God has promised in Christ is yours. That's what God did for you if you're a Christian. And once we receive that, our natural, natural response was to open up our mouths and praise the Lord. Because he deserves it. He's worthy. He's worthy of all of our praise. This is why the believer rejoices. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if that's true of you this afternoon, then the only right response is to open our mouths and praise to God. The fact that the you in these verses here are singular is an opportunity for individual examination and consideration. Notice verse 2, God is my salvation. He's my salvation. That means that nobody can believe for you. It's not good enough for you that God is your mom's salvation or your grandmother's salvation or your pastor's salvation or your cousin's or your spouse's salvation. No, he must be your salvation. You must embrace Jesus for yourself. And I want to say to anyone here who is not a Christian this afternoon, you don't understand yourself to have uh, repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be saved today. You can receive Jesus even as this message is being proclaimed if you would trust that he is who he said he is, turn from your sins, and place all of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He must be your salvation. This is my wife's testimony. My wife grew up in church, so she, from the time she was a kid, was in church and very active, very involved. Uh, Even as a nine-year-old, she was on the choir, she was on the youth choir, uh, and she she had very kind of obvious talents in terms of singing, and so so she was put up front constantly in the church, and and all the the while, she actually was not converted. So she she, she was spending her entire life, even as as Brian talked about earlier, doing Christian things and, and being around Jesus without actually knowing Jesus. And her testimony is that as an adult, one day she was at a Bible study where they were studying through the book of Ephesians, and it dawned on her that the warning passages, the warning passages of those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of of God, she realized for the first time that that actually applied to her. She had never seen herself as a sinner before. So whenever she thought about people being sinners, she always thought about the people out there, the heathen out there, the the pagans out there overseas somewhere who've never heard the gospel. She didn't realize that, no, it actually applied to her. And that if she died in that state, that she was deserving of God's wrath. And it was at that moment that the Lord in His grace revealed to her through His Word that She is the one who needs Jesus, 
and that Jesus, that God sent Jesus to actually die for her sins. And it was at that moment that she was able to say, God is my salvation when she trusted in Jesus. May that be the case, that can be the case even for someone today. This is why we sing. Do you see singing praise to God as a form of prayer? Because that's what it is. Look again at verse 4. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. So calling upon his name in verse 4 is not detached from singing praises to him in verse 5. So singing praises to the Lord is a form of calling on his name. I like this verse from uh, James chapter 5, verse 13. It says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So that covers the full scope of our lives, the full scope of Christian experience. Are you in trouble? Are you suffering? Call upon the name of the Lord. Pray. Pray to him. He's here. He's our heavenly father. He receives our prayers. On the other end of the spectrum, are you cheerful? You, you, are you happy? <laughs> Sing praise. That's an opportunity. How, how often do we waste our opportunities to approach God because we can take happiness for granted or we can take cheerfulness for granted and not return to God to give him the praise that he deserves? I can say for myself, there have been so many times that I've been cheerful where my first, very first instinct has not been, okay, I'm feeling, I'm feeling great right now. Let me just return it. Let me just give this praise to God right now. Let me just sing his praises right now. May that be our default response. If anyone's suffering, let him pray. If anyone's cheerful, let him sing praise. And the beautiful thing about this as believers is that we can pray to God anywhere. So we can, we can, we can literally give God praise anywhere. So are you in your prayer closet? Sing praise. On your lunch break, sing praise. In the car, sing praise. In the shower, sing praise. He's worthy everywhere. He deserves it wherever we are. In whatever situation we're in, he deserves the praise. Do you serenade your God? Is God familiar with the sounds of your sweet serenades to him? Is heaven aware that you sing melody not only in your heart but with your voice when you're alone before the Lord? You know, people do crazy things when they are in love. People do crazy things when they're in love. You ever see somebody just act, just acting a fool, and you're like, okay, okay, he must be in love, because I've never seen him do that kind of stuff. So when somebody's in love, 
it'll turn them into a poet when they've never been able to put words together ever. But now they in love, they like, they think they Cyrano de Berger, like they just like, yeah, I'm just gonna see some poetry, you know what I'm saying? I'm just gonna write this down, right? Why is that? You know, like, like, why is it that when, when people have this, this, this feeling, these, these romantic feelings and butterflies, they just feel like, I'll just do anything? It's because their affections have been raised. And when your affections are raised, it just causes you to do stuff that you normally wouldn't otherwise do if you weren't in that condition, so to speak. I like this quote from Jonathan Edwards. He says this about singing praises in religious affections. He says this, the duty of singing praises to God seems, uh, seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and to do it with music, but only that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections. You hear what he's saying? There's a reason why, why God has commanded us to sing stuff and not just say stuff. The reason why is that there's something in the way that God has created music, there's something in that that for the human soul stirs our affections. And so what we're meant to do is have our affections stirred towards God. And he's giving, he's given singing, song, melody, harmony, he's given those things as powerful means not to be idolized, but as means to stir up our affections towards the Lord. And this is the reason why when we sing, we must sing true things, right? So when we're singing praise to God, we want to sing what's in accordance with his word, what's in accordance with the scriptures, right? We would never want to pray false things to or about God. So why would we accept that in our songs and where we're singing, right? When we sing, we, we want to sing what's true about the Lord according to who he has revealed himself to be in his word. And so if you're, if you're feeling dry, if you're, if you're feeling cold towards the Lord, one of the gifts that he has given for you is the gift of song. The hymn, praise God for the legacy of the church and, and the many hymns, even the things that we've been singing this morning. There's, there's just something about it that, that takes our eyes off of ourselves and it lifts them up to the Lord. And God has, a, ha, it has an effect where, where God produces joy and, and, and love in our hearts towards him. Let's take full advantage of these things. One of my spiritual heroes is uh, my wife's grandmother. We, we, we called her Mama. And uh, Mama just went to be with the Lord in April. Uh, she was 93 years old. And this woman walked with Jesus for 75 years. She, amen. She walked with the Lord Jesus for 75 years. And I only got to know her the last few years of her life. But the thing that struck me about her is that she was without question a woman of prayer. So 
so when, when, when Blair and I got married, one of the things that her grandmom let her know is that she, she, like the things that God had been doing in Blair's life were things that her grandmom had been praying for her for decades. And her grandmom was so excited that the things that she had prayed for many, many years before had come to pass in God's faithfulness and in his grace and in his kindness. And so Blair had told me all about her grandmom and, and just how well she knew the Lord. And so my very first time meeting her, I was a little nervous. I'm just like, oh, man, I just, gotta, I just, I just want to sit at your feet, mama. Like, you got any wisdom for me? And so, so I meet her, and just a very quiet, um, just very peaceful and very settled. And very first thing is, as I say, I'm very, very glad to, glad to meet you, mama. <laughs> and she looked at me, and she said, Do you know Jesus? <laughs> Do you know Jesus? Now, now I, I know I, I know I know know Jesus, but in that moment I was almost like, oh, do I know him? Like, <laughs> I know I don't know him as well as you do. You've been walking with him 75 years. And so I, I said, I said, I said, Mama, um, yes, I do, by his grace. And she looked at me and she said, how you know Jesus? You ain't been through nothing. <laughs> you young. You ain't been through nothing. I said, Mama, I am young, but I've been saved by his grace, and I give God all the glory for it. And she said, Amen, young man. Amen. And here's the thing about Mama. Towards the end of her life, she, she had dementia. Uh, to the point where she no longer remembered our kids. And even Blair, when Blair went to visit her in her last days, she barely, in and out, remembered Blair. But in those moments, in her last days, when Blair would get together with her at her bedside and say, let's sing a hymn, and start singing, Mama would recall it like that perfect pitch, knows, know every single word, could not remember her granddaughter's name who's with her in that room, but she remembered her Lord. That's because there, there, there were decades of her praying to God in song, and it was common for Mama just in, in, the middle, in the middle of our time together. It could be a, a house full of people where Mama just out of nowhere just start breaking in the song, just singing praises to Jesus. And we would just be compelled to sing along with her. That's what it means to, to know the Lord, to know your Lord, to know God as your salvation, and to open up your mouth and regularly sing his praises. Not only that, not only praise God individually, but praise him corporately. Look again at verse 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. You, plural, will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. That 
calling upon the name of the Lord, that, that giving thanks to the Lord and drawing from the wells, the water from the wells of salvation, that is a picture ultimately of the worship in the new heavens and the new earth with all of, all of the believers gathered around God's throne singing these th things. So it's certainly true for Israel and had a literal fulfillment, but it also has a forward-pointing fulfillment as well. Listen to this quote from Jonathan Edwards who talks about praise being one of the chief employments of heaven. If you haven't read that sermon, I commend it to you. It's called Praise, One of the Chief Employments of Heaven. And he's given the, the reasons why the saints praise God in heaven. Quote, first, the saints in heaven praise God because there they see God. There is a blessedness promised to the saints that they shall see God. That they see God sufficiently shows the reason why they praise him. They that see God cannot but praise him. He is a being of such glory and excellency that the sight of this excellency of his will necessarily influence them that behold it to praise him. Such a glorious sight will awaken and rouse all the powers of the soul and will irresistibly impel them and draw them into acts of praise. Such a sight enlarges their souls and fills them with admiration and with an unspeakable exaltation of spirit. He continues, It is from the little that the saints have seen of God and know of him in this world that they are excited to praise him in the degree that they do here. But here they see but as in a glass darkly. They have only now and then a little glimpse of God's excellency. But then they shall have the transcendent glory and divine excellency of God set in their immediate and full view. They shall dwell in his immediate glorious presence and shall see face to face. Now the saints see the glory of God but by a reflected light as we in the night see the light of the sun reflected from the moon. But in heaven, they shall directly behold the sun of righteousness and shall look full upon him when shining in all his glory. This being the case, it can be no otherwise but that they should very much employ themselves in praising God. When they behold the glorious power of God, they cannot but praise that power. When they see God's wisdom that is so wonderful and infinitely beyond all created wisdom, they cannot but continually praise that wisdom. When they view the infinitely pure and lovely holiness of God, whereby the heavens themselves are not pure in comparison with him, how can they avoid with an exalted heart to praise that beauty of the divine nature? When they see the infinite grace of God and see what a boundless ocean of mercy and love he is, how can they but celebrate that grace with the highest praise, end quote. You see his argument, right? It's, it's because of the, it's the, the, the little bit, the tiniest bit of the glory of God that we see in this life, and we don't see it perfectly, not, not by any means, right? But, but the little that we do see it causes us to praise God to the extent that we do here. And he's saying that, 
when it gets, when we come to glory, when it gets to all sin removed, all hindrances removed, glorified bodies, glorified affections, brand new desires. When we get to that place, we're going to see God, we're going to see him in a way that we've never seen him before. And because of that, we're going to praise him in a way that we've never praised him before. If you think about the drama of redemption, you have the writer, who is God himself. You have the main actor, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the supporting actors, who is the church. But the drama of redemption is a musical. (laughs) It's a musical. There are reasons why we're called to sing over and over and over again in the Bible. You have a whole book, the Psalms, nothing but songs. The drama of redemption is a musical. And so what we get to do every single time we meet corporately with the people of God, we get to rehearse. It's a rehearsal for what we're going to be doing for all eternity in heaven. Let's not waste it. Let's take full advantage of it. So therefore, let us not forsake the gathering of the saints. Let us regularly meet to come together to sing God's praises corporately. But it doesn't only have to be in our churches. We can sing in our homes corporately. So, so, so husbands, sing to the Lord with your wives. Give God praise. Fathers, Sing with your families and, and children in family worship around the dinner table, giving God praise. In your small groups, sing praise to God. Ladies, sisters, when y'all come together for your women's group, sing, sing God's praises before y'all, before y'all jump into the other stuff. And then after y'all jump into the other stuff, give God all the glory that he deserves. We can praise him corporately in many different contexts in our local churches. May we take full advantage of that. A few applications as we close. Number one, very simply, if you are saved, if you are saved, open up your mouth and give God praise. Very, very simple. Has he saved you? Has he redeemed you? Has he revealed himself to you? Then open up your mouth and praise his holy name. Application number two, resist false saviors. Resist false saviors. The text says, God is my salvation. God, not my job, not my money, Not my relationships, not my appearance, not my reputation. No, God is my salvation. And that's the reason why I can say I shall not fear if God is my salvation. But if I'm I'm saying that God is my salvation, but seeing something else as a functional savior, right? So if I I see my job as my salvation, then my biggest fear is going to be surrounding my, my employment. If I see my relationships as my salvation, then that's where, that's where my fear is going to come from. If money is, is my salvation, that's where my fear, my, my fear is going to be surrounded by all, all in my finances. 
No, he says God is your salvation. So may, may we, by his grace, resist the lure of false saviors and cling to him. And as we cling to him, let us sing to him. Oh, that rhymed, didn't it? I'm a rapper, sorry. Number, number three, devote yourself to praising God individually and corporately. So it's not enough for us to say, amen, that's what's up. Like, I agree with that. Let, let us do it. Let us make a habit of this. Let us make a practice of, of this. And I, I know that many, many of you are already doing it. I just want to encourage you to do it more and more. Listen to this quote from Spurgeon. He says, come ye children of God and bless his dear name. For does not all nature around you sing? If you were silent, you would be an exception to the universe. Does not the thunder praise him as it rolls like drums in the march of the God of armies? Does not the ocean praise him as it claps its thousands hands? Does not the sea roar in the fullness thereof? Do not the mountains praise him when the shaggy woods upon their summits wave in adoration? Do not the lightnings write his name in letters of fire upon the midnight of darkness? Does not this world and its unceasing revolutions perpetually roll forth his praise? Has not the whole earth a voice? And shall we be silent? <laughs> Amen. I'm convinced that Spurgeon would have been an MC if he was alive today. <laughs> He'd have been a rapper, Thabiti. Absolutely. So, so poetic, but so true. So true. If we keep our mouths shut, then we're the exception in the universe, because all creation around us is joined in singing God's praises. So let us, as a people, devote ourselves to praising God individually and corporately, and just as a way of immediate practical application. Can we all stand? I want to sing a line from a song that we like to sing in Philly. Uh, some of you may know it, some, some may not, but we're going to, I'm going to sing. It's a repeat, so I'll sing the first line. You repeat after me. <clears throat> let us adore, let us adore the ever-living God. And render praise Unto him, who spread out the heavens, and establishes the earth, and whose glory, and, if, and then together we're going to say, is manifest throughout the whole earth. Is manifest? Is manifest throughout the whole earth. Let us adore, our sovereign Lord and God. And render thanks, and render thanks 
Yeah. Unto him, who's chosen a people, and redeemed us for his own. Yeah. For his glory. And Christ the Lamb who's seated on the throne. And Christ the Lamb who's seated on the throne. And Christ, and Christ the Lamb who's seated on the throne. He is God. God. And then together we say, and there is no other, and there is no other. He is God. He is God. And there is no other. And there is no other. Let's make it personal. You are God. You are God. And there is no other. And there is no other. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and we praise you that there is none like you. May we be devoted to individually and corporately singing praise to you because you have done gloriously in rescuing us from your wrath through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us to respond appropriately in this life and even beyond when we will meet with you in glory perfectly singing your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.